thought we'd start with a who's who, first of all. So uh, first one's pretty easy. Uh, picture on the screen, please. And uh, who's this? Boris Johnson, also uh, with a large replica behind him. Next one, please. Northern Ireland Secretary, Brandon Lewis. Great. Next one, a bit more tricky. I will know their Icelandic politics. This is Katrin Jakobsdottir, who's the Prime Minister of Iceland. Next one, please. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa. Next one, please. Himself, Prince Charles, and uh, not 300 meters from here on Wednesday, Bangor Power Spire in the background, Bangor Market in the foreground. Prince Charles. Next one, please. Ma'am, Her Majesty the Queen. It's not difficult to recognize the Queen because, well, obviously we have a world of photographs and also a world of internet and newspapers, but also because the Queen's image appears over and over again. Here are some of the examples on coins, uh, on banknotes, on stamps, and also on statues. So even if it weren't that we lived in a world of photographs, we would also already know what the Queen looked like because we have her image in all sorts of day-to-day -day things that we use. And uh, I think that really could help us to understand what John's Gospel is all about and how it has its roots in the Old Testament in the very start of Genesis chapter 1. I don't know if you saw on Monday there was, as the part of the UK, England, uh, started to open its museums and things. There was an interview of two ladies who were standing in the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, and they were standing in a long line in the hallway, which has so many different ancient statues in it. And there are statues of, quite a lot of statues of the Roman Empire, emperors, with uh, their families, larger-than-life statues. And the women, of course, were saying how wonderful it was to be out in the community, back in museums, and be able to see these three-dimensional statues that were all around them. And these statues, many of them from the Roman Empire, were brought from all over parts of Asia, uh, Africa, uh, parts of Europe, where these statues had stood in place. The one place that statues weren't gathered by Miss Ashmole, who gathered this collection originally before handing it over, was Rome itself. Because the reason for statues in antiquity was that the local man and woman in the street would understand who is our ruler, who is it that rules over us. So these larger-in-life statues meant that people could walk past and go, so that's the man who's in charge, that's the man who rules over us. And they may say at that moment under their breath, and isn't it great because we live in a world which is full of justice and full of peace and my own life is really thriving under the leadership of this man that I see in the statue. Or they could have been muttering under their breath, if I had a chance, I'd get rid of that man. He's responsible for the death of my brothers and father and he cripples me with taxes. Different people would say different things in that moment. But the reason for the statue was so that people could say, now I know what the man looks like 
who rules over us. So whenever in Genesis and also in John, as he reflects on Genesis, there is all this talk about images. It's really about statues. And so in Genesis chapter 1, it says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock, and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And in this verse, Genesis 1:27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The words that we've heard so often, but so often we miss the profundity of them. That God has placed in the midst of creation a statue. The God who created everything has placed his image in the midst of creation so the creation of itself would know, so that's who rules over us. Except because God is God, the dynamic and living one, the statue isn't made of stone and it isn't made of wood. It's a living statue. It's a living image. And if you want to know what it looks like, then look in the mirror or look around you today. In a world where we struggle to wonder, are we just animals? In a world that we struggle with a pandemic of depression, a pandemic of directionlessness, of hopelessness, is it amazing to read the first chapter of the Bible that says that God made everything. On the sixth day, He made animals, and then He made something that is an animal, and yet is unlike anything else. He made human beings, male and female, so that the whole of creation can look and say, so that's what God looks like. That's what the one who looks, who looks like who rules over us. And this is really central to what John is doing in his whole gospel. So Genesis 1 begins, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then John's gospel begins, in the beginning was the Word. And Genesis 1 builds up to those verses 26 to 28 where we hear that God created human beings in His own image and He created them for a purpose to rule. And they, just as in antiquity, a statue was to remind people who's in charge so that everyone would thrive under that rule. So in Genesis, a living statue is placed in the garden. And why is it placed in the garden? The image is there to rule over the garden, to rule over creation, to remind people this is what God looks like, the one who is lovingly as a benefactor, blessing us constantly, and also then gathering together all the beauty and joy and creativity and color of creation and pointing it back up towards God and worship. And so there's this wonderful harmony of creation flourishing and God, the Creator, getting His due for all He's created because there is wise and loving leadership being exercised by the image of God on earth, a man and a woman and their offspring, human beings. And of course, in Genesis chapter 1, all that comes to its crescendo on the sixth day. 
And on that day, after creating the heavenly bodies and the dry land and the fish and the, and the animals, then on the, on the sixth day, human beings are created. And uniquely, they're declared to be made in the image of God. And then John's gospel takes us through, and we hear that in the beginning was the Word, and then in John 1:14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. What John is saying here, he's echoing the six days of the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1. And so he brings us to a Friday, the sixth day of the week. And in the early hours of that morning, Jesus is brought before Pilate. He's been, he's been beaten, he's been flogged, he's been mocked, he's been spat upon, he's had a crown of thorns placed on his head, he's had a, a robe to, to mock him as the king of kings placed on his back. And there comes this moment whenever John wants us to understand that the whole of his gospel is all about the sixth day of creation, and creation uh, meeting its, its zenith. I haven't actually read this passage yet, have I? John 19, here we go. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no purpose for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to the law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid and went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. They shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, 
The chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four squares, one for each of them with the gar undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled. They divided my clothes among them and cast cloth clasped lots for my clothing, for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. John's gospel is all about the fact that when Jesus is born, when the word becomes flesh, the sixth day has arrived. The day not of creation, but of recreation has arrived. And yet there is one moment in the midst of Jesus' life. It's the sixth day of the week. It's the Friday morning. And in the early hours, he's standing before Pilate. And then what is meant to be the very best justice system in the world comes to a point where it acquiesces to a baying crowd. Pilate has tried to free Jesus again and again and again. He has told them, this man is innocent. This man should be let go. Do you want to free Barabbas? He's tried again and again. And yet finally, when he hears the Jewish leaders say, this man claims to be a king, Pilate. And that's no friend of Caesar. If you let him go, then you're no friend of Caesar. It's a threat. And Pilate finally gives up. He's done what he thinks all he can do to have Jesus set free. And yet in the end, what is meant to be the best and the most sophisticated justice system in the world fails. And in that same moment, the most truth-filled religious system in the world, the Jewish leaders, when there's a whole scripture that says God alone is king, they stand before Pilate and in one voice they say, we have no king but Caesar. And in that moment, human beings, the very best they have to offer, fails. And Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified. And yet, just before he does that, Pilate says in Latin, Ecce homo, behold the man, here is the man. That's what the translation is in the Latin translation of the New Testament, the Vulgate. But John, our gospel writer, didn't write in Latin. He wrote in Greek. And what John wrote 
literally translated as this. Look at the human being. You see what John is saying in his gospel? Here is the true image of the true God. Here is the perfect man. He's covered in blood. He's been flogged. He's been slapped. He's been spat upon. A sharp crown of thorns has been pushed onto his head. A robe mockingly has been put on him. He has been declared the king of the Jews. And the Jews have shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Last week we looked at what, what do we do when we encounter truth? And we realized when we really think about it that we trample all over it with exaggeration, with flattery, with gossip, with lies, with telling half-truths, big lies, small lies. Whenever we're handed the truth, we trample all over it. John wants us to understand two things as we come towards the end of his gospel. He wants us to understand that in Jesus, the one about whom Pilate, the Roman governor, said, here, look at the human being. This is the moment of recreation. Jesus, the Word made flesh, the one who was with God, the one who is God, the one who was with the King, the one who is the King, has become flesh. And what have we done? We have brought him to this place, flogged, bruised, bloodied, the living, loving image of God. And Pilate says, here is the man. Look at the human being. Literally, look at the human being. What do you want me to do with him? Surely you don't want me to crucify him. And the best of the human beings all gathered together in that square shout, crucify him. This week has been a, it's been a interesting week in the news, seeing Prince William stand in front of a camera. We knew it was a fairly unusual thing whenever Prince William finally breaks his silence after so many years and stands in front of a camera and speaks as to how he feels his mother and his family have been treated and how Martin Bashir and his team lied to get the interview of Princess Diana and the ramifications that that had. But it struck me as we remember the stories and the pictures of the paparazzi hounding Princess Diana and even as they drove behind her black car and it crashed in Paris. And the fact that at that time, the right type of photograph could, could gain a photographer hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds. 
I thought, yes, but who, who buys the photographs? Who buys the newspapers? Why did Martin Bashir and his team lie to get that interview? Because they knew that you and I would watch every second of it. Who paid those photographers? We paid those photographers. Who paid the BBC and who paid Martin Bashir and his team? We paid them. Which image do you honor in life? There's only one that is worthy of worship, and his name is Jesus Christ. He is the true image of the true God. And strangely, in the mystery of God, the day where that was most clearly apparent was the day that he stood before Pilate, and Pilate said, look at the human being. It was the day that he was nailed to a cross, having his garments divided among soldiers and cast lots for his cloth of undergarments. We will all worship something, ourselves, celebrities, achievement, popularity, notoriety, riches, the future of our children and our ambitions for them. We will all worship something. But there is only one true God, and there is only one true image of the one true God, and his name is Jesus Christ. And on the day of his crucifixion, the sixth day, he was lifted up so that everybody could get a good look. This is the man who rules over us. This is the man who rules over us. Here is the living statue of the living God. And here's something which is just as amazing. The reason why he did it, the reason why he allowed himself, voluntarily went to that place where he knew that every single person would let him down, every religious and legal, legal institution would fail him because ultimately they're run by human beings. The reason why he did it was to redeem us. The reason why he did it was to bring us back to that place where we can fulfill our call that is written throughout the whole Bible. Why are we here? What is our purpose? We are human beings who are made in the image of God. And why has God placed us in the garden of this creation? To rule over it with love and generosity and care. To submit to the one who alone is God so that all of creation will submit to us. And so in this, we don't call attention to ourselves and say, look at the man or look at the woman. We say, look at the man, Jesus Christ. We say, here is the human being. 
because we realize, as those who have tracked the news over this last week, that our tendency, whenever we're given something which is pure and innocent and true, our fallen human tendency is always to crush it, always to destroy it. That's what we did with Jesus. And yet He knew that we would do it. And in that place of crushing, our life was born. In that place of the seed being broken open, a new creation happened. It was the sixth day of recreation. And what does Jesus say at the very end of the sixth day? It is finished. He isn't just talking about his ministry. He isn't just talking about the crucifixion. He's talking about the fact that recreation has reached its completion. We have reached the end of the sixth day. What happened, we hear about in Genesis chapter 1, the end of the sixth day, God rests from all his labors. What does Jesus do at the end of the sixth day, having given his life for us? He rests in the tomb. And the reason he does it is that you and I have a choice. Do we bow the knee at the things in this world that are false gods, that are so subtle and seductive? Or do we bow the knee to the one alone who is God, Jesus Christ? And realize that as we look upon him, even as he hung on the cross for us, we are seeing the ultimate outworking of John 1.14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And what John is telling us in his gospel is this. The moment that Jesus hangs on the cross with a charge of being king of the Jews put above his head, is the moment most clearly in all of creation that we understand what God looks like. God looks like the man who is hanging on the cross because His love for us is so profound and so unstoppable that He would even lay down His life in brutal execution so that you and I can live. In recent years, we've seen how important and how symbolic statues still are. When Saddam Hussein was overthrown, his huge statue was thrown down and broken up, and people danced all over it in joy. Even in recent months, we've been pulling down statues of slave traders in Liverpool and Bristol and other places. Next time you look in the mirror, next time you look in the eyes of another human being, remember the fact that you and they were placed here in order to be the representation of God in the midst of His creation. In our lives, we may feel very far removed from that reality. And Christ came that we may be forgiven that we may have a fresh start, that through his shed blood we may have a new beginning. 
The question is, who do you honor? Who do you recognize as the one true God? You will only find why you're here. You will only find the purpose of your life. You will only fulfill your calling to be the image of God on earth in Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Perhaps today you're wondering, can I really have this new start? The new start is for every single one of us. For you, it could be the first time. For you, it could be the thousandth time. We recognize afresh, Jesus, the Word made flesh, died that I may be a ruling representation of God on earth. What dignity, what joy, what purpose, what fulfillment there is in that calling. There is no other calling that is worth living for. Let's pray together. Father, as we read Scripture today, we recognize the amazing call that you've placed in our lives, the, the purpose for which we've been created, the, the, the noble purpose as to why we as human beings are here. It's an amazing call. And yet, Lord, we know that the Scripture says we've all fallen short of it. We've all, we've all become rebellious. Lord, today we recognize that you have recreated all things in Jesus Christ. That today there's a new beginning as we take our eyes off false gods and false statues and we look alone to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, and we recognize that you are alive, that we recognize that you alone are loving God. And Lord, we come just to to recognize that we need forgiveness, we need a fresh start, we need life, we need strength, we need fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit into our lives to equip us, to shape us into the image of Christ once again, full of love and joy and peace and all the gifts of the Spirit. And to pour out the gifts of the Spirit, Lord, as well as the fruit of the Spirit, to to pour out the gifts of the Spirit that we may exercise this authority you've given us for good. Lord, today we, we worship at the living statue of Jesus Christ. And we say here, look at the human being and to know amazingly that as we gaze on him, we gaze on God. And in that place, we become like him. And in that place, amazingly, by the power of the Spirit, we begin to take our place, that we exercise authority for good, we're full of love and compassion and peace. Lord, we can't do this alone. Empower us by your Holy Spirit to do this. Pour out your Holy Spirit today upon us. Show us afresh the dignity of who we are as human beings, made in your image made for your glory, made for the benefit of your creation, made for the blessing of other human beings.
so, Lord, may justice and truth rule on like a river and righteousness like a never-ending stream. What does the Lord require of you, man or woman, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God?